Christian Mercado is a full-time real estate investor and army captain. He got his start in real estate in 2017 with the purchase of his first house, utilizing a VA loan. Six months later, he rented a room out and discovered the power of house hacking. After a year, he purchased another home to live in using his VA loan and rented out the first, and he was off to the races. Since that time, he has flipped at least eight houses, opened up several short-term rentals, and purchased a self-storage facility. In this episode, we talked to Christian about the purchase of his first piece of real estate using a VA loan, how a light bulb went off after he started renting one of his rooms out, how he purchased his first self-storage facility for zero money down, and the key to negotiating with self-storage owners. I'm Neil Henderson, and this is The Road to Family Freedom. Before we get to this week's show, we'd like to make you aware of something. We are self-storage investors. We buy existing self-storage facilities and vacant buildings that can be converted to self-storage in the Sun Belt. We buy them with cash and some with loans, and we use private lenders who become equity partners in our deals. These equity partners share in the cash flow and the profits when we sell. When we find a deal that we are considering, we call the equity partners and offer them a share of the ownership secured by the property. So if you've ever driven by a self-storage facility and thought, I wonder who owns those things, and you have any interest in learning more about the storage business, we'd love to chat with you. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash storage. That's roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash S-T-O-R-A-G-E and set up a time to chat. We look forward to speaking with you. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Well, Christian Mercado, welcome to the road to family freedom. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So before we get into talking about self-storage, I, I want our listeners to to learn a little bit more about what your background in real estate is. You bought your first property using a VA, VA loan, correct? Yes, that's correct. And what can you tell us a little bit about that? What was it? Did you buy it as an investment property or did you have real estate in mind when you bought it? Uh, what's the story there? Yeah. So um, actually, I didn't have real estate in mind. I didn't really know too much about investing. At the time that I bought it, I was it was 2017 and I had a friend that had just purchased their house, her and her husband. And she was telling me all about it and I was like, "Oh, that sounds pretty cool." And I just started uh, thinking about it and then the next day I woke up and I was like, "I, I think I want to buy a house." And so I started going through the process. I had been in long enough to where I was able to use my VA loan and 30 days later, I was moving into my first house and I didn't really think of it as an investment. It was more so just, I bought a house kind of thing. But later on down the road, it would be the catalyst to to my investing. Gotcha. And so for our listeners who maybe aren't, aren't all that familiar with how the VA loan process works, what was, uh, how much money were you required to bring to the table? Like what did, what did it take to close the property? Yeah. So with the VA loan, you either have to have four years of, of uh, a total of four years active service or a total of six years reserve service, all good years, basically, you know, have, not having missed things. And um, it's it's a zero down and you're only paying closing costs. They're a lot more strict on the appraisal side and, and you know, the actual loan side than conventional, but uh, it was it was a good strategy and route for me to take. So I used it twice and, um, on the comment of using it twice, you can use it twice. You just have to, I believe they have to be in different counties and certain mileages away and you have to wait, I think a minimum of a year. So I rented, I rented the first one out completely and then used it again because it's a total of for Texas, like $480,000 you can use. You could split it up and buy two properties or, you know, however you want to do it. So that was the route I took. On that first one, you you rented out one of your rooms, correct? And sort of turned it fell into a house hack in a way. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I rented about six months after I purchased it. I rented a room out. It wasn't really until I saw the, the power of my mortgage being paid down that I was like, "Oh, this is kind of cool," you know. And then, and then at that time, that at that same time, I discovered the Bigger Pockets podcast. And at the time, I was commuting about an hour a day to work. So instead of putting on the radio or, or music, I was listening to podcasts every day. So I, I just started really soaking in all the, all the information that I could. And at the time, I was also getting my MBA. So that kind of introduced me to, to business as well. 
Gotcha. Would you, so you would say sort of that, that first tenant sort of was where the light bulb went off for you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I had, when I only had to pay half of my mortgage, I was like, oh, this is awesome. You know? And then I would have tried, I tried to buy the second property. I try to buy the, the duplex, triplex and the quad, but in DFW, it's a, it's a hard market because you're uh, competing with investors that are paying cash, but I ended up buying the second property. So we, we interviewed uh, a guy by the name of Eric Upchurch back on, let me see what episode it was. God, I just had it. Episode 78. Uh, and he, he talks a lot about teaching veterans how to house hack using their VA loan. And anybody who's former military that's got access to a VA loan, I highly recommend you, you go back and listen to him, look Eric up. Uh, look you up when we're done with this because it's such a a powerful tool for veterans yeah. to do. And you know, there, I know I work with veterans a lot, and a lot of them have bought homes in almost every permanent station that they've been in, and they've just kept the home and turned them into rentals, and they just kind of like became a landlord along the way. And it's such a great, it's a really powerful tool. Yeah, it's an awesome tool, and and uh, I I see I ask a lot of my junior soldiers. Or, you know about the the product, and it, it surprises me that a lot of them are are eligible for it, but just don't take the the steps to do it because you're only paying closing costs. Luckily, it worked out for me because the first house cash flows like 500 bucks a month. But had I known like I should be looking for a property that would make sense as a rental and you know stuff like that, I, I would have you know been a little more prepared. But luckily, it worked out for me. Gotcha. All right. So from there, and I want to dig into this a little bit, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. You, once you started, got in, you got into real estate, you started flipping houses, you started doing some short-term rentals. Um, walk us through kind of that process and tell us a little bit about that story. So 2017, got the first house, 2018, uh, made it a first rental, got that second property in 2018. And then probably like uh, mid 2018 into 2019, I was really just soaking in all the podcasts I could, uh, all the books I could. Obviously, uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, uh, one of the most famous ones for getting people started in real estate. And summer of 19 is when I flipped my first house with a partner. I I had a business partner who had already been doing it, and he brought me the deal. Uh, he used to work for a wholesale company, so they made a little a little commission on it. And he brought me the deal and he said, Hey, how about we partner on this one? And, you know, I'll kind of show you the ropes and, you know, split profit 50, 50. And so I was like, okay, sure. And so that was the, uh, the first flip that we did that one pretty much utilized a, um, a money partner as well. And so, uh, and most of the deals we've done, haven't utilized like own personal money outside of the rehab, but for the down payment portion. So, yeah, so that, that was summer, summer of 2019. And then pretty much did the, the next few on my own and would come back now and again to a partner flipping houses with my business partner. So how many houses did you end up flipping? From that point, it was a total of eight. And for the first one, really just learn all the systems and, you know, just really took off from there. It, it, it is a little more hands-on, but once you really get that system going, it becomes a lot easier. And we would, we would, we would, we wouldn't buy like full gut rehabs. We would just buy, you know, cosmetic only take two, three to four weeks because we felt that less is more. Gotcha. So, and were you swinging the hammers yourself or were you hiring contractors? No way. Not at all. I uh, have a strong belief that time is money. So definitely hiring contractors and we, at being able to do that, we could take on, you know, two at a time, essentially, as long as they're all uh, staggered correctly. That's kind of the route we took. And from there, how did you find yourself doing uh, short-term rentals? So I think I had stumbled across uh, a YouTube individual who was well-known uh, teaching about Airbnb. And I brought it to my business partner and I was like, hey, what do you think about this arbitrage? And we decided that the cost of furnishings was, was relatively low and the risk was on the lower side. So we decided to open up uh, we started with two at the end of 2019, and then I, I launched another two the first quarter of 2020. And so those have done actually relatively well. I spend very little time. I still have them. Uh, we just ended one lease as we, we've decided that that's not our focus. I, I think at that point we were discussing, you know, 
between bought purchased houses and arbitrage a total of 20 units but as time went on really got to uh learning the you because you're in a hospitality business and no longer it's no longer a real estate asset so it was not that it was a lot of work because we systematized everything to where we were spending only an hour a week and we still only spend about an hour a week on them but it's just the amount of of uh transaction or the amount of um talking to guests that you do so often, it might be little times like, you know, five, 10 minutes here and there, but it piles up to, to the hour a week. So that can be a little exhausting, but anyways, so that, that we, we did the Airbnb thing for a little bit and I, I really have started to transition out of it. Gotcha. So let's talk about focus because this is something I've struggled with. It's a lot of, it's something that a lot of real estate investors struggle with, especially when you're starting out, there's a lot of shiny object syndrome. It's like, you know, Oh, lease options. Oh my God. You know, that sounds so cool. I want to learn how to do that. And my first question is, did you have a full-time job when you started out doing this or were you pretty much full-time in real estate? Uh, no, I, I did have a full-time job. So pretty much when I, when I got my undergrad and MBA, ever since then, I've always had a full-time job. So it wasn't until February of 2020 when I became a full-time real estate investor and not by choice because I was terminated or let go. But I was blessed to have closed two properties right before that happened, like literally the week before. And so I was going to be okay, you know, for the, if, for the remainder of the year, if I, if I did nothing, but it was basically an open door and it, it was something that I had always wanted and was thinking about, you know, while I was in the W2, I was like, all right, I'm going to plan on leaving maybe, maybe summer of 2020 or maybe, you know, early, early spring or whatever. And, uh, but I was still a little nervous, you know, cause it's a big, it's a big jump. And, and then of course it happened on its own. And I was at that point I was forced. Make hay while the sun shines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and then I just, I continued full on, uh, you know, flipping the rest of the year and keeping up with the Airbnb, uh, units. Uh, and then at that point is when I really started to dig into uh, learning as much as I could about commercial real estate. Gotcha. All right. Well, nice segue. Let's talk about how you first became aware of self-storage as an asset class. Yeah. So, so once I got started in single family, like it, it was, it was great, you know, flipping, you make a decent amount of profit, but a lot of it was transactional it's all transactional wealth. And, uh, even if you, you know, let's just say you have 50 single family rentals, it's still like, there's not uh, much economies of scale because you have 50 roofs, you have 50 HVACs, 50 this and that's that you have, and they're, they might be all over the city. And, and then two, it typically takes a, a good amount of time to, to get to that point where you can feel like, yo, I can, I can live all this, live off of this for sure. Um, and it, it, to me, it was just kind of a slow, a slow game. And I wanted to, I knew where I wanted to be and I wanted to be there sooner than later. So I was looking at other options and then I came across commercial and, you know, the power of the NOI and, uh, just net operating income and how you can, you know, add value and increase the performance of a commercial asset and increase its value tremendously and the cash flow tremendously. So in the beginning, it was, I was really looking at multifamily and I feel like it's a little bit harder to get into multi multifamily. A lot of banks want to see track record. They want to see a certain net worth. And of course you can leverage uh, others using their, their um, track record or what, what have you. But um, I don't know. I just, I just, uh, you know, I, I learned, I learned about that, that side of it. And then at, at some point I, I just uh, found myself, in self-storage, uh, came across, I think it might've been, it might've been, uh, a couple of the, of the big guys on self-storage, maybe, maybe Scott Myers or one of those guys came across their, their content online and just really started digging, digging in as much as I could. I, I had a, a brief knowledge. Now this is summer 2020, I had a brief knowledge on it and I did send out an LOI on one, uh, letter of intent. And I got an executed contract. They accepted the offer and I got an executed contract and I went through the progress. Now, um, I didn't like, I was confident in my knowledge of it, but it wasn't 
nearly anywhere where it was today. Um, I actually uh, terminated that contract because after I got back a lot of the due diligence documents, um, the NOI wasn't anywhere near where they reported. And I asked for a price reduction and they didn't want it. So I backed out okay. and uh, I ended up, ended up spending, you know, thousand bucks or so on an attorney drafting contracts and stuff. Um, but it was a good, you know, I think it was a, a, a good thousand dollar lesson just going through the process of it. Gotcha. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about that one. So you, uh, you were under contract. Did you do any kind of a feasibility study or did you anything like that? I terminated before I got to the phys- feasibility study part. I was day one, waiting for them to get back there, you know, two year tax returns, rent rolls, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, they like half of that stuff they didn't even have. So it was a little difficult trying to, and then they took, you know, the, the contract states that it doesn't start until 10 days where you have a period to where they have this amount of days or these amount of days to deliver all these documents to you before the, the contract actually starts. So they were just taking a long time. And I finally got most of what I needed to, to analyze the deal. And after I got a lot of those documents, I just, I found that, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't anywhere near what I was going to pay for it. I don't want to buy a bad deal. And that one was only, it was, it was tiny. It was like 5,000 square feet. And if I under if I knew what I know now, as far as like economies of scale and self-storage, I wouldn't even looked at it, you know, but I was a little more naive at that, at that time. A lot of these owners that you're dealing with, a lot of mom and pop owners, either they're disorganized or sometimes they're willfully disorganized when suddenly you're asking for the documents that that are going to, that you need in order to proceed. Were you planning on using bank financing to purchase the property or were you going to, how were you going to finance it? Yeah. So that, that one, I was going to be using my bank relationship that I've built when I was flipping houses. Cause I, I started flipping using hard money and, and then I got to a point, you know, I went and asked the bank after a first or second deal and they said, no, you don't have enough experience. And then did the first two or three successfully using hard money. And, uh, at that point, you know, when I would bring them deals, they started lending to me. So at that point, you know, I brought up the conversation of, of, of purchasing commercial and they said they would be willing to look at the deals and stuff. So, yeah. And that's often who I'll use as the bad guy when, when talking to a seller who's being sort of like, well, you know, uh, my NOI, you know, my, all my documentation only says I'm making this much, but you know, it's a cash business, wink, wink, you know, and I just go, okay, well, you know, the lender that I'm going to have to use to buy this is going to want to see the last two years of your tax returns. Right. And if, if your tax returns are showing you're only making so much, that's what they're going to base it off of. And they're not going to base it off of your, you know, your fictitious trailing 12, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, I do the same thing, you know, um, or I'll bring it in um, to utilize the uh, owner financing strategy, you know, just based on they're not being data or occupancy being at a certain level where, you know, well, the, I'm not sure if the bank is going to, you know, want an occupancy this low. So would you consider, you know, owner financing or something along those lines? So it, it works both ways. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about that. Your first self-storage deal. Uh, how did you find it? Uh, I actually did a direct mail for that one. And, uh, at this point of doing the direct mail, I had joined a group called the Storage Rebellion with Mike Wagner. Fantastic group. It's just all, it's purely all self-storage operators. It's almost like a little network, like a little LinkedIn for self-storage. And you can go and ask whatever question you need to ask and people will chime in and they'll really help you. I think, I think that was a big catalyst to uh, being able to feel confident in purchasing the deal that I did. So at that, after, you know, the, the remainder of the year focusing on self-storage and learning. Yeah. I found this deal doing direct mail. I decided I was going to do a direct mail campaign and sent out about a hundred miles away from me. And out of, I think I got maybe like a two or 3% response rate. And most, most of the time I think, cause I think they get a lot of letters. And so my, my uh, perspective on, on direct mail has changed a little bit. I think, I think the best way, 
to uh, approach sellers is, is, you know, the relationship approach. But it happened that one of them responded back to me because they had some 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 things come up and weren't sure what what they were going to do with the facility, and they replied back to me. So pretty much took the next few months trying to you know getting to know the seller. He was living in California, and he flew down here a couple times uh, when he was in town working with his other investments. And so I I drive out to meet him about an hour and a half, and you know discuss not necessarily the numbers yet, but just trying to get to build that relationship. And then I think maybe it was like three months later, we finally got to a, a purchase price number. So there's, there's a couple of things I want to, a couple of great points you bring up there, which is so much of this business in real, it's, it's in all real estate is a, is timing is being top of mind when someone is in a position of needing to sell. That's why people get so many letters you know, and I talk to a lot of self-storage owners who get frustrated by, you know, oh, I get tired of getting all these letters. I'm like, well, you're not going to be tired of getting it when you suddenly decide it's time to sell. Right. You know, and, and that's really where, you know, that's where it does make a big difference. And the other part you, you bring up, and I want you to expand on a little bit is, is you think it's more of a relationship business than necessarily the the letter that worked. Yes, I, I definitely do. I mean, because a uh, funny thing, a, a colleague also in one of the group, the groups I'm in also sent the same letter to the owner, but I think he, he said that he upset, uh, he upset the owner somehow. I don't know what, what he said or what his message was. And so he, he didn't sell it to him, but he's ended up selling it to me. And I think that just goes to show like how the, um, you know, but I think that relationship really came into play because, you know, I spent, it was the first thing I wasn't doing was trying to like, just get it all knocked out, get the number. Now, actually, when he comes into town, we'll meet up and we'll talk. And I think we spent the last, uh, some couple of weeks ago, three hours at a coffee shop, just talking and chatting. And and now he wants to sell me a, a duplex in Germany. <laughs> Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah. Same structure of owner financing and stuff. So you never know the, what comes with these relationships. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, you, this is, um, I don't know, I guess the, the best analogy that I've ever heard for it is it's like dating. You're not going to ask if you start asking about money on the first date, it's sort of like asking, asking to sleep with the person on the first date is yeah. almost what it's like. And so you really want to get to know the person and find out what they're about and what they want before you start talking about the deal. And that's really hard when you're eager for a deal, you know, you want a deal and you, you know, you're like, I want to make this happen. And, um, and so I don't know what it was that your colleague, you know, did to piss him off. But my guess is probably, you know, tried to close a little too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of uh, people try to take the, uh, the single family approach, which is, you know, we buy houses and that might work a lot better in that, in that realm, but you're, you're dealing with people who are, you know, somewhat of a business owner or the business owners might not be like uh, super savvy if they're mom and pop owners, but, but I think the mom and pop owner thrives on the relationship versus the, the people of today just want to get it done. You know, investors just wants to close stuff like that. And so, you know, the, the self-storage industry where I think now it's like 60% or somewhere around there is, is mom and pop owners. You got to change your approach to how you, you come across to them because they have the stack of letters. But if you took the time to maybe make, maybe make a stop at the facility to meet them in person or something along those lines, they're going to choose you when they come to sale instead of the other 10 letters that they got. You can't use the single family approach. You know, I mean, I, I know people who, buy single family houses, a lot of times they'll send a, they'll send an offer sight unseen. I mean, you know, who's the offer pad, you know, mm -hmm. where they basically send you an offer right out the bat for your house. And then once they get it, then they go, well, you know, you've got your house has got this wrong with it, this wrong with it, this wrong with it, this wrong. Do not do that to a self storage owner uh, that, that will not turn out well. Um, you really, this is a much longer process. And like you said, you know, you spent months building a relationship with this owner and, uh, we've interviewed 
Fernando Angelucci a couple of times. And Fernando is really adamant about that. And he says, I, I get to know, I get to know the names of their kids, where they go to school, whether or not they're planning to go to college, you know, is I get to know a lot about these owners before we ever start talking about buying their deal. I mean, they know why I'm there. It's not, you know, I'm not, (laughs) but it's a dance. It really is a dance. All right. So the seller finally decides to sell and talk to us about that negotiation. Cause I, I, part of me is, is really excited for you. And the other part of me really wants to punch you. And I know there's a lot of other self-storage uh, investors when they hear about this deal, who are going to feel the same way. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about the specifics of the facility. How big is it and what kind of area is it in? Um, it's uh 40,000 square feet. And actually what I found out as I, uh, you know, was working the deal and, you know, came, came to when I got the survey and stuff, the seller had, had, had been, um, basically marketing it. Well, or just letting me know that it was uh, 30,000 square feet. And then once I got the survey, um, and of course I did my, my Google earth measurements and it, it the two numbers were off and I was like, Hmm. And then when I finally got the survey done, it, it came back to confirm that it was, was bigger than, than the seller thought it was in the beginning. So, you know, right off the bat, you get, you get 10,000 extra square feet there, uh, same purchase price. And I bought it for $19 a square foot. So that was uh, $775,000. And the biggest thing for the seller was, was uh, taxes. He had owned the facility for, I think it was 15 years or, you know, somewhere along there and had utilized uh, his, uh, or wrote off the depreciation against it. So he was going to be faced with depreciation recapture, uh, if he were to sell it outright. And so he decided to owner finance to me. And so we set up, you know, 25 year am, uh, this one was 6% interest and, uh, he wasn't asking for a down payment. So, which I wasn't complaining about, I was already ready to, to utilize it because he had a, he had a, he actually had a underlying a debt on it. So he had been, he had a relationship with the bank that he had out here and have proof. We got the, we got the bank sign off to say that we could wrap the loan. So he wrapped it and he didn't want to, I guess he didn't want to pay any, any type of capital gains or anything. So he just said, here you go. <laughs> so <laughs> no down payment and, you know, monthly, monthly payments. So Okay. So on your first mailing, you bought a 40,000 square foot self-storage facility using seller finance, zero, zero money down, 25-year AM at 6% interest. You know, is there a, a, a really bad term that's going to, what's the terms? When does it, when do no, you have it's to- a, So a five-year balloon. Um, five-year balloon, okay. When I purchased it, it was 80% physical, probably like maybe 79% economic occupancy. It's been about a month and a half and we're already sitting at about 84% occupancy and haven't, haven't even started my, my marketing campaign just yet. So, but before, before, before I decided on this deal, I, I went to all the competitors. I went to get a feel of their occupancy, how they were operating. A lot of them didn't even answer the phone, which is pretty common in smaller towns. It's, it's in a smaller town. It's about an hour east of uh, Dallas, DFW. Yeah, a lot of them didn't answer their phones. A lot of them said we're full with wait lists. And I, of course, confirmed the square foot per capita, uh, which wasn't the number itself isn't isn't the biggest contributing factor. But that's why I went ahead and did my competitor uh, analysis. And basically, with all the data that I had, uh, I felt pretty confident in, in purchasing the deal. Is there any room to expand? There's um so it, it came with two parcels. So the majority of the facilities on one parcel and then another small facility on another. And it's got some room to expand. Maybe like, you know, uh, three quarters of, of a mile, nothing, nothing too crazy, but uh, it's got some room there. Uh, so yeah. So $19 a square foot is less than replacement cost. It is. And the insurance companies, when I was getting a uh, new insurance was like, well, the minimum we can do is like $30 a square foot for uh, insurance. And I, I was like, well, I, I bought it for 19. They're like, 
well, then you just got a, a good deal or something. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's right. That's what you know. That twenty, you know, the average replacement cost is about twenty five dollars a square foot. That may have gone up a little bit, you know, given where steel prices are. But what was wrong with it? Why was the well, why was the seller? I mean, he's got eighty percent occupancy and it's seventy nine percent economic occupancy. What was wrong with it? So you might think, man, there must be something going on with this facility. <laughs> yeah. And actually, there was nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. I think so. The the seller, his main business was uh, multifamily. He has a hundred units, you know, a couple of different complexes, and he had this one facility. And he had a, a manager, a site manager here, who pretty much he said, "Here, figure it out, and I'll let you run it." Like, uh, so wasn't really active in it. Uh, didn't understand the the uh, self storage industry, or how to bring value to it, and uh, the expense the expenses were pretty much where to where the manager had uh, extra an assistant manager. Of course, you don't need definitely don't need two managers on on the facility this size, and just expenses were pretty much what what she felt they should be, and so the owner wasn't wasn't actively managing it. And so that's where I came in and saw the opportunity to not only cut expenses, but, oh, and then there's, there was rents that had not been increased in 10 years. There was some tenants that were paying like $30 for a 10 by 20, uh, when it should be 75 and, you know, so maybe 10 to 20% of those of the tenants were in that situation. So really just, I, after I had learned where to, where, where I could increase the value, I, I just, I don't know. I just went and did it. So, yeah. Well, I think uh, any self-storage investor who had heard you tell the story and heard you pass on it would have wanted to punch you as well. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm so I'm in a violent mood today. I'm sorry. Is there, was there much deferred maintenance? Uh, no, it, it was, they actually, I think last year painted all the, uh, uh, or a majority of the facility and, the other facility uh, does still need to be painted, but other than that, uh, I came in, I, I rehabbed the exterior a little bit. I added uh, a new gate operator so that way I can, uh, you know, each tenant gets their own access code and they can be remotely overlocked. Adding adding new lighting, cameras, stuff that was missing here and stuff that people buy. You know, they say that maybe 70 or 80% of the, of the self-storage customer or client is a woman and so you're selling security to them and so that's who you're marketing to so my focus coming in was security so i I, uh the front the the front row of buildings didn't have a fence around it so my i brought the fence out i moved the gate put a new gate operator lighting and cameras yeah i mean even even since then it's it's been um i've gotten more traction of people just wanting to to move in the previous owner said he was never able to get more than 200, 200 tenants. It's, it's 250 units. And, uh, in, in the month and a half, we were already up to like 214. Wow. So rolling back just a minute, what, uh, do you recall what the expense ratio was when you bought it? Probably like 60%. Oh, wow. Okay. That's yeah. What, yeah. And so if, if, you know, national, I, I believe is 35%, uh, on gross, um, and, you know, I, I, I talked to many operators who are 30% pretty easily. So yeah. yeah, as soon as, as soon as, as soon as I saw the expenses, I knew immediately that, that they could be cut in half and the income could be increased. <laughs> this is such a screaming deal, Christian. <laughs> so, uh, did it have a website? No. Uh, well, it had a Google site. So it was like, it was like, you know, the name of the facility dot Google dot site. That was the extent of it. Yep. Um, no active marketing in place at all. I mean, the majority of, of the tenants were paying by check and cash. Um, so I knew I knew right away those indi- those were great indicators of a, um, a facility that wasn't operating to its fullest extent. The manager was making trips to the bank every day, and so it was just everything was extremely manual and. Um, I just knew I could streamline it a little bit better. Yeah. Well, so let me sort of recap sort of the opportunity that you saw here. One, 
you were buying for less than replacement cost at $19 a square foot. You're buying at zero down using seller finance with 25 year AM. You had an expense ratio at 60% when you know that the you know national average is about 35%. You had security, you could see security issues, you know, they had they didn't fencing. They didn't have a website. So what you you've obviously you've only owned it for how many? Three months? Yep. Yeah. All right. So aside from adding the fence. How are you, what are the, what's, what are the next steps? What are you doing to, uh, to turn the facility around? I just got my uh, website launched and now I, I know a lot of people probably would have done it prior to closing. And for me, since being the first one, I was a little more nervous to, to go spend money on, on uh, something I wasn't, I, I, I you know, I, don't, I didn't see why it wouldn't close, but you know, you never know. So, you know, a website, a, a decent website is not, uh, super cheap. So I, I, I spent some, uh, a good amount on a, on a decent website and the website, you know, integrates like a integrates to my software and uh, has like a storage calculator. We can calculate the, you know, how much stuff or the size of the unit you need. So all the bells and whistles. So, uh, that, that actually just launched today or, or tomorrow. And, uh, and then I'll start focusing the same company that built, that built the uh, website does some SEO type stuff and Google ads. So they'll start doing that and, and really get it to, you know, 87, 90% occupancy and, and then really just start focusing on the rent increases and getting the tenants that, cause I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to focus in on a certain ten- tenant, one that, you know, of course one, okay with paying the street rates uh, because it's justified at this point, you know, yeah, the new updated security and lighting. And so the one that might, I've, I might get like a one to 2% uh, decrease once I do increase these rates, which will be happening in the next week, but it'll make room for the people that want to want to be here and, and pay that rate. So, gotcha. So how, who's managing it right now? Who's, who's your boots on the ground? Uh, so right now I do have a, a, uh, the site manager is still here. So Ben, uh, working with her to to kind of help these these processes out and um, and and really just see over time if if how I mean because it, it still cash flows with with a full time manager but at at some point I probably I don't know if it it will be you know we'll see how that goes basically okay and then on the on the website uh, are you able to do online rentals now yes uh, so I do have uh, online online rental. And, but it's still as of, as of right now, it'll still be, uh, where they can, they can pretty much do the reservation online and, and come, come to the office to, uh, to, uh, finish everything out. But eventually I'm putting all these, all these things in place, like where I can overlock the gate from, from anywhere and, um, and different, different auto, not, um, automated, but obviously self storage is not automated yeah. uh, completely. So just different things I can streamline everything with. Okay. So you can lock them. Now, when you say overlock, you mean uh, lock them out of the the facility, correct? Not their unit. Right. So like, uh, let's just say they go into a non-payment status. Uh, You know, you can, you can, instead of a lot of people, what they do is they have, they have their boots on ground, go and overlock the, the unit physically if they don't have a gate or something like that. But if you have uh, the gate operator that, you know, you can, you can overlock from a computer just by, by locking their access code. Gotcha. So that'll be like the first level of overlock. Gotcha. And then are you doing any, any kind of a call center? Have you changed your, your, the way the facility was accepting phone calls? For right now, I have not implemented a call center. Uh, it's something that I'm definitely thinking about doing. Um, there's a couple, couple guys out there. I know, I know ESS offers a call center and like, uh, I think the other one is XPS or something along those lines and it's relatively inexpensive. So I, th- I think it's something I'll be adding in the future. But for now, your manager, your onsite manager is taking the calls. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So I want to wrap things up here a little bit and get into some of the stuff that we, we try and get out of every guest, which is first, um, you mentioned that you, the way you got yourself educated, it was pretty much just online. You just kind of, you know, listen to podcasts, uh, AJ Osborne, Scott Myers, 
Did you pay for any, uh, uh, sorry, in storage rebellion? Uh, my, my apologies, Michael, he, he'd uh, be mad at me for not mentioning him. Did you pay for any mentoring or anything like that? Or just, did you just pay for some courses? Uh, no, I, I didn't pay for mentoring. I, I think, you know, going in when I first started real estate for me at the time, I, I was, um, I was kind of cheap. So I don't, I didn't want to pay for something I felt like I could, I could get online. And, uh, now, now, now I, I could definitely, you know, be part of a mastermind or something and, and I'd feel fine paying for that. But as far as courses go, uh, I, I, I'm a very like learn as I do individual. So I wanted to just get my feet wet. And so I did take part, um, in, uh, the storage rebellion and I paid for their course or his Michael's course. It, it's great content. Uh, honestly, it really sharpened my game in uh, self-storage. And then AJ, I stumbled across uh, AJ Osborne's podcast and his book, read his book a few times. And, you know, you got two, two different um, types of, of operators and it, it really was awesome and helpful to see both different types of, of operators. And uh, yeah, I think, I think that, that right there was the catalyst for, for uh, being able to operate this. Gotcha. You know, they, um, I think you bring up a good point too, is that Michael Wagner sort of has a, one kind of business model when it comes to storage and AJ has another, I mean, AJ is much, much bigger, you know, he, they're buying, you know, 80,000 square feet, hundred thousand square feet facilities. And I think they're even building some from the ground up. Is there anything that you think that you overestimated the difficulty, uh, when it came to self-storage? Um, I think it, uh, really just like the, the transition period of, of getting everything turned around, you know, I wasn't really sure what to expect, you know, cause it, it for one, it was just me. Uh, I was the only one that bought the deal and it was basically, I was relying on my confidence of everything I've learned. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, just dealing with certain little things. They're very small, actually, you know, uh, getting the gate operator move. So when I installed the fencing, they had to move the original, the original gate. I had to like, you know, have that synced up to where people's or the guests or tenants stuff weren't um, going to be in danger at all. And so it was just really little small things of, of, of lining stuff up and, and uh, uh, you know, but, uh, and, and of course, you know, I, I, inherited a, a manager. So I think there are a couple of different things I would have done from the beginning. I think, uh, I think AJ says he, um, interviews them again or interviews them coming on. So, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, um, do, do some of those things, but so it's just really learning, you know, having an employee. So a lot of, a lot of learning comes with those things. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how much time would you say you're having to spend on, uh, the self-storage, uh, right now? Um, right now I probably, I probably, so in the beginning when I first bought, bought the deal, um, I was here for the first, almost every day of the first two weeks, just, just making sure everything was, you know, cause I was changing pretty much everything from the way, the way checks were getting deposited to, you know, just different options. So I was, making sure that everything was going smoothly as it could. Now, uh, it's just maybe once, once, once a week, and then it'll transition over to like once a quarter. Uh, once I feel like everything is, is, is stabilized and, and, and strong. And when you say once a week, you mean, you know, like an eight hour spending like an eight hour day there? Uh, well, not, I probably won't spend eight hours here. I probably spend maybe four, five. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, not super far for me, uh, about an hour and 15, 20 minutes. So I just make the drive out here, spend, uh, you know, four, four hours out here and then head back home. Gotcha. And then once it's up and running, do you think it's something that, um, how long do you think you could, how long of a cruise do you think you could go on and feel comfortable that things wouldn't fall apart? I guess it really depends if, if, if we're talking in a perfect world here or not, cause there's always something there might be something that comes up with you know, uh, let's just say, uh, a, a, a unit catches fire, or, you know, just so if it, if it's a, a perfect world and there's not nothing crazy that doesn't need my input, or I'd, I'd say maybe six months or so, um, or a few months, I, I think since, since there is a site manager here, she, 
Um, that's why I've been teaching her my what I want as far as practices and, and or procedures. Uh, so most most of the day to day stuff doesn't necessarily need my my input. I think right now it's just been needing my input because she's being bombarded with all these these new streamlined type upgraded softwares, uh, you know, and it's it's a bit of a lear- learning curve. But uh, so yeah, but other than that. Yeah, it, it could it could go for a little while. I think I think bringing that point back to I think AJ's story, he he would he um, was in the hospital for a while and his ran without him pretty much. So yeah, gotcha. it's definitely one of those businesses that once you have all the processes in place, it, it, it can do pretty well. Gotcha. All right, last question, um, and this is a new one we've been asking all of our guests, which is if you had fifty thousand dollars that you had to invest passively in the next 90 days, where do you think you would invest it? And what would be a return that you would be expecting to get? You know, I'd probably passively as like passively as possible. As passively as possible. Cause I, I, I've asked this question some, from some other people and I'm like, well, I'm going to invest in one of my deals. And I, I, I'm sort of looking for more like, you know, what you would do, you know, to the most passively. I would say, probably just put it into a syndication simply because that's probably the most passive as, as it's going to get as a silent partner, anything else, you know, buying your own deal or, or partnering with somebody else, it, it, it's going to require some of your work. So I, I think that's probably what I would do. And I think I'd be fine with, you know, the average, average IRR return or uh, what, what have you on a, uh, maybe, you know, three to five year uh, hold. I think that's what I would do. What and what sort? What would you consider to be the average, the average IRR? Um, see, I, I I don't know if it's it's an eight, eight is it eight percent eight percent return preferred. Typically, you know, a lot of places will do a seven to eight percent preferred return, and then they're you know the IRRs higher something you know, and then, what, you twelve know. to fifteen or somewhere around there. Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's probably that's probably where where I. I'd put it where I don't have to do anything. Gotcha. Uh, and any particular asset? I mean, I know obviously, you know, storage is something, you know, would you, you know, would you try and diversify? Would you just try and find another, uh, another storage operator to invest in passively? I think it'd either be self-storage or multifamily, especially if, if the, the, uh, sponsor is, you know, as honestly, as long as they're experienced, uh, and have been have done many syndications and, and know what they're doing. I think I'd, I'd feel pretty comfortable giving giving them fifty thousand. Gotcha. Uh, uh, so you know, either multifamily or self storage. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Christian Mercado, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing with our audience today. You're on Instagram, and you also have a podcast with your partner called Middle Class to Millionaires. And I encourage yes. our guests to go and check you out. Um, we'll put all this in the show notes, but if any of our listeners want to find you and reach out to you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can add me on Instagram. It, it's uh, Christian does real estate, pretty simple, uh, handle there or Christian at, at the century storage.com. Gotcha. Okay. Well, thanks so much for sharing with us today. Thank you for having me. Okay. That was Christian Marcato, owner of, uh, the century storage. Uh, I highly recommend you go and check out his stuff on Instagram at Christian does real estate. Uh, it was great talking to, you know, I'd love geeking out about storage. I'm sorry. Uh, for those of you who are not into it, uh, you probably didn't enjoy this episode, but I always enjoy talking about storage and what, uh, honestly, what a fantastic deal Christian, uh, found himself in. So key lesson learned here for this episode was one that remember that this is not, when you're talking to storage owners, you're not, this is not residential real estate. Um, you're talking to somebody who has built a business and, you know, from the ground up often, and it is their baby and it is a, it's a relationship business. You are building a relationship and it is very much like dating. Um, and you need to get to know that person uh, before you really start at talking about money. And it's a much longer process. We're talking months, not weeks, sometimes a year. So don't get jumpy, just be patient and get to know, get to know the owner, build rapport. Uh, that's some of the best advice I've ever gotten. 
All right. Money. Good Lord. This, you know, for those <laughs> deals like this don't come along very often. Um, he got in for 0% down 25 year am, uh, for $775,000, uh, because of seller finance. And th- there you have just the power of asking, you know, I mean, asking the owner when you're in negotiation, what do you plan to do with the money, you know, from the sale? And a lot of times they're like, well, I'm just going to, you know, stick it in the stock market. And then you bring up the, you know, the conversation of, you know, have you, have you thought about what the taxes are going to be, what the capital gains taxes? And, um, some of them haven't thought about it at all. And so if you bring that conversation up sooner than later, um, you might be able to point out the benefits to them of doing seller finance where they can, they can spread out the income uh, from this sale and, and basically save themselves a lot of money in taxes and continue to get some income from an asset and that without having to do any of the work knowledge, he, uh, you know, he went to the storage rebellion. He, um, he went to, he watched a lot. He read AJ Osborne's book, followed some Scott Meyer stuff. And one of the biggest challenges knowledge wise for him was just the the transition, you know, all of a sudden one day he goes from not being a self-storage owner to suddenly he's a self-storage owner and, you know, having to, having to, you know, sort of learn how that transition happens. You know, he, he kept the, uh, one of the on-site managers on and, and, uh, was having to basically retrain her on processes and, and things like that. Time. He said in the beginning, it was very much a full-time job. It was, uh, the transition, um, that caused that. And he said, now it's more like four hours a week. And he said, eventually once things are kind of up and running, he, he anticipates that it'll be more like four hours a quarter. Um, as far as distance, he says that, you know, he thinks once things up are up and running that, um, he could probably go at least six months without having to, to have much input. And, uh, this is, you know, it is important to remember that storage is not just real estate. It's also a business. So what it would take to do that is also, he's got to, you know, set up the the processes and, and procedures for his, uh, boots on the ground to follow in order for him to do that. So, okay. Once again, that was Christian Marcato from middle-class to millionaires and, uh, the century and sorry, the century storage appreciate his time. And it was great talking to him. I'm Neil Henderson. We're doing this all again next week. Let's hit the road. Bye. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review and do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels on your road to financial freedom.